light. The reading today is from Matthew 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptised them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptise, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from those very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to serve, to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the shaft with the never-ending fire. May God bless his reading to us today. You may come up now. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. Good to see you all again. So, here we are. First Sunday of Advent already. This year seems to be whizzing by, doesn't it? Don't you think? I'm told that happens when you get old. So everybody that's just nodded, then well, I won't say anything more. Um, we're kicking off this season of Advent with a focus on John the Baptist this morning. And I think, you know, John the Baptist is a man it would be very easy to cast aside as being a right proper weirdo, realistically. Um, because he's set apart... He's very strange in his ways, it would seem to me. He's fiercely straight with his message. He is most definitely a man on a mission. Uh, but before I get into maybe us talking a little bit about John the Baptist, I uh, just wanted to speak a little bit about this story that I came across this week as I was preparing for Sunday. It's a, it's a true story. 
Um, it's about a chap called William Haslam. So maybe some of you might recognize that name. He was a 19th century England, English country parson. I don't quite know what a parson is, if I'm honest. I think a parson is just an old, it's me, is it? I was going to say, Flick, I was probably just, you know, somebody who lives in a parsonage. Um, uh, I think it's just the old-fashioned way of calling it's a priest or a rector or something like that. You know that, do you? Right, so I'm glad you're here. That's what a parson is. Thank you. You're doing well so far. Um, now, all I can say is probably in those days, clergy selection and training maybe wasn't perhaps as rigorous as it is today. So in 1842... This bloke, William Haslam, was found himself leading a church in Truro, and it probably would be fair to say that maybe he wasn't really a Christian. I mean, maybe he was nominally a Christian. You know, he knew his Bible, he obviously preached and taught from the scriptures, he knew all about the sacraments, the traditions, the liturgy of the church, all of that kind of stuff, but maybe he didn't really personally know Jesus. And his congregation at the time contained many from a Methodist background. Anyone has got a Methodist background? Only me. Is that it? Yeah, see, some of us, God bless the Methodists, eh? Uh, these people regularly were telling the stories of how they'd encountered Jesus. And their regular stories about how they'd come to know Jesus and the fruit of that that he saw in their lives affected him really deeply because he knew something was missing from his life. He just knew there was something missing. And so he's in this really awkward position where he's obviously living in a parsonage that came with his job as a parson, and he wasn't quite sure about Jesus. What's he going to do? Because if he's really honest and says, well, I don't really know anything about this, he's not going to have a parsonage living anymore, is he? And he's not going to have his job as a parson either. So he was in this really awkward situation. What is he going to do? And this man brilliantly, beautifully, wonderfully resolved that he couldn't continue like this. He was going to have to preach one final sermon. And in this sermon, he was going to announce that he couldn't any longer stand at the front and preach. And he was going to be honest about why before his congregation. And then he was going to ask that they might pray for him. What a beautifully, wonderfully, incredible uh, illustration of good leadership, I thought. The honesty and the integrity to do that. In his own words, here's what happened when he stood up to preach. Something was telling me all the time, you are no better than the Pharisees. You don't believe Jesus has come to save you any more than they did. I do not remember all I said, but I felt a wonderful light and joy coming into my soul. And I was beginning to see what the Pharisees did not. Whether it was in my words, or my manner, or my look, I know not. But all of a sudden, a local preacher who happened to be in the congregation that day stood up and putting his arms up, he shouted out in Cornish fashion, and I can't do a Cornish accent, I can do quite a lot of others. If he'd been Australian, it would have been great, but I can't do a Cornish one, so I'll just say what he said. The parson is converted! The parson is converted, hallelujah. And in another moment, his voice was lost in the shouts and praises of three or four hundred of the congregation. 
And instead of rebuking this extraordinary brawling, as I should have done in a former time, I joined in with the outbreak of praise and then gave out the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And the people sang it over and over and over and over again. And the revival, the renewal that followed William Haslam's spiritual awakening lasted three years and loads of people came to know Jesus. And I thought as I was reading this story, do you know what, I think John the Baptist would have been really quite pleased with the outcome. Because I think that's probably what he was hoping might have happened when he'd looked at the Pharisees and called them a brood of snakes. Well, I hope he was anyway. If not, probably it wasn't the kindest thing he could have said. Now, remember last week, though, when I said to us that each one of us has a little Pharisee inside us trying to get out? Do you remember that? Yeah? Good, because I think it's important we do remember that. Because I happen to... Well, I wonder whether the longer we've been in church, the stronger that Pharisee becomes. Yeah? Because we know how to be, we know the language, we know how to act, we know how to put on this outward kind of thing of being spiritual and holy and lovely. We know. We know all of that. And that little Pharisee inside of us gets stronger. Now, you're not familiar with John the Baptist? What can I say about John the Baptist? Well, he's a bit like the warm-up act for Jesus, John the Baptist. If you've ever been to a gig, you know they put the lesser-known one on first to warm the crowd up, to get them all ready, to get the expectations rising. That's John's role. John is not here for his own sake. He's not here to get his, his name up in lights. He's not here to gather around the largest group of disciples ever. He's here to help us to come to know Jesus personally, and he's here to do that by smoothing the road to spiritual renewal. A little like the ways in which William Haslam's congregation, through their testimonies and the fruit that was evidenced in their lives, smoothed the way for his moment of spiritual renewal. Look at the way that Matthew describes John. He said of him, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming and clear the road for him. Now in those days, when a great king went to visit another king, the hosting king would order that all the roads would be prepared before he arrived. They had to get rid of all the strange junctions because you wouldn't want anyone getting lost. They had to get rid of the unnecessary bends so that none of the bandits could hide around a corner. They had to fill in the potholes. They had to repair the bridges. They did all of this thing because they wanted to speed the arrival of the king who was coming to visit. Well, the road that John comes to prepare and make straight, I believe, is the road to the spiritual renewal of all of our hearts. And he's going to challenge us to fill in the potholes, to fix the bridges, to smooth out all of the bends so that we might go deeper into God, so that we might know more of Jesus. And I think, fortunately for all of us this morning, there are three big areas that John's concerned with because it makes it a good Baptistic three-point sermon. On the day we're thinking about John the Baptist. See how this is all coming together? It's not thrown together, you know. Um, I think there are three things that he points to. 
three, if you like, bumps in the road to spiritual renewal. And I think as he points to each one of them, he asks us a question. He asks us a question. The first thing I think he points to is he points us to the coming of Jesus. And as he does that, he's asking us the question, really, have you really understood who Jesus is? Have you really understood who Jesus is? Now, there was a rather odd description, wasn't there, of John the Baptist's clothing? John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. And for food, he ate wild locusts, and uh, he ate locusts and wild honey. Although I'm sure the locusts were wild. Um, I think that's a bit of an odd fashion statement, isn't it? Coarse camel hair. It sounds almost like it's like a Baptist bush tucker trial in the itchiest jumper that your mother ever knitted for you to go to school in. Do you know the sort of thing? Maybe some are into denim, some are into tweed. John the Baptist was a camel hair man. Um, But it is a lot more important than that. Because this isn't, amazingly, the first time that somebody appears in the Bible dressed in this way. In the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah dressed in the same way. If you look in 2 Kings 1, somebody had said, who was it that you saw? And they said... Um, this man dressed in camel hair with a belt round his waist. And they went, oh, Elijah the Tishbite. Yes, that's the one. So you see, they didn't all walk round in that because he was known for it. But John is far more even than just a tribute act to Elijah. Because the very last book in the Old Testament, the last word from God that his people had for centuries was written by the prophet Malachi. And the last thing he wrote was, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And then the Old Testament ends. We turn the page and there's Matthew's gospel. But in that turn of a page, 400 years have gone by, 400 years of silence from God. So why is John dressed up as Elijah? It's a sign. It's a sign to us that the one he's pointing to, Jesus, is the one who will bring about the day of the Lord. Or in simple terms, he is the one who has the power to end all things. He's trying to get us thinking about who this Jesus really is. You know, if you ask people nowadays, who's who's Jesus? Who do you think Jesus? You'd probably get lots of different answers. For some, Jesus is just a swear word. For some, he's a wise prophet. For some, he's a teacher. For some, he's a baby that was born in Bethlehem, and they like to keep him that way because nobody feels that challenged by a baby. For some, he's a liar. For some, he's a madman who just got himself killed because he'd never shut up. And some will say he's the son of God. What John is pointing to, dressed as he is, is simply this. Which one of the many identities that people might say Jesus is, is going to enable this Jesus to bring about the end of all things? And Matthew doesn't tell us that in this reading, but if you read the rest of his gospel, you're left in no doubt by the end. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. And until we come to that conclusion... We never experience the spiritual awakening, I think, that John promises. You see, Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He isn't just a great example to follow. He's way more than a prophet. He is God, both fully human, fully divine. No, I don't understand that. But this is the only way he could accomplish the mission. Jesus is God. And there is the first bump in the road to iron out. Have you 
really understood who Jesus is. But we pick up the story in verse 5. People from Jerusalem, all of Judea, all over the Jordan Valley, they go out to see and hear John and they confess their sins and he baptizes them in the Jordan River. Here's the second bump in the road to spiritual renewal. John points us, I think, to a true repentance. And as he does that, he's asking the question, have you, have you really repented of your sin? Have you really turned from what is death dealing and fully faced God? The first words that Matthew records John speaking is repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And John gets to the heart of what true repentance is, of what he's talking about, I think, the kind of repentance he's talking about when he addresses the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he doesn't really endear himself to them, does he, as he calls them a brood of snakes. Basically, you children of snakes. It's not the kind of name you'd probably want for yourself. He tells them to produce fruit that is consistent with repentance. What does this really mean? It means you demonstrate the true change in your heart and mind by the way in which you live your life. And then he goes on to make a remarkable statement that I think is really, really applicable for all of us. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. Because I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. What he's saying is, don't just think that because you're Jewish and you're God's chosen people, that everything's okay. That you'll get off. That you don't have to be really sort of making that much effort. Because paraphrasing, he goes on to say, God can make chosen people out of rocks if he wants to. He doesn't need you. And I think it's important we get a hold of that. Because quite often I think it's easy to think we've got a bit of a heritage of faith in our family or we've been in, born in a Christian country or we go to church very regularly, you know, we're here every Sunday, we're good people, we, we, we're kind to people. Do you know, all of these things doesn't necessarily mean that we're followers of Jesus. And if you felt you could jump in and answer the first question as to whether you've really understood who Jesus is and you're thinking, well, flipping out, this is a bit easy, isn't it, Lou? You're preaching to the converted here, then maybe I could say, well, the question is how your life and your living displays the truth of what you say you believe. William Haslam's congregation spoke of their faith, but it was the fruit of that confession of faith, the fruit of their understanding of who Jesus is, that he saw and experienced in them that challenged his heart and showed him what was missing within his spiritual walk. John says, produce fruit that is consistent with repentance. Fruit consistent with a life that is lived in a transformed and new way because you really do believe that Jesus is God. You see, the consequences of the lack of true repentance is a bit stark, really. Verse 10, even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And who is it that he's talking to at this point? Who is it that he's talking to? Is it all of the people that were unclean and a bit out there who we thought never really would have any hope anyway? No, he's not. He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. As he's speaking these words, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders 
Jesus is talking to the religious people, the ones who think they've got it all worked out, the ones who think they're right, the ones who find it very easy to see where everybody else is tripping up and not quite really living in a right and true way before God, the ones who are portraying to the world all the outward evidences of being really holy and really true and really good and really upstanding and really right in God's eyes when the reality behind all of that is somewhat different. You know, one of the main reasons that a fruit tree might not produce fruit is because it's dying. Because a dying tree starts to do things it's not supposed to. Because it gives signs that something's not right. Then the fruit stops and it dies. And then, well, a dead apple tree ain't really good for a lot, is it? No more good than a dead plum tree. What do you do? You chop it down and you put it in the fire. And then, well... I have to say, in the same way for professing Christians, if we do not do what we are supposed to do, a bit like the book of James talks about, faith and works and all that, what good are we as people who say we're Jesus followers? Because the lack of fruit in our lives demonstrates the path we're on. When we are not fruit-bearing Jesus followers, surely all we are are pretenders. Surely all we're really doing is playing a game. Now, you might think, this is obviously taking a little bit of a turn for the harsh and uh, gloomy this morning. This Advent, for heaven's sakes. We've got the tinsel on the tree. We've lit the candle. This is supposed to be the week. We're talking about hope. She's talking about judgment. It's a bit awkward. It's a bit intense. I make no excuse for it at all. John's a bit intense here when he's talking. And actually, do you know what? I don't think this is hopeless. Why? Because finally, this is the bit where you wake up. This is the third point, third point, wake up. Because finally, John points us to the work of Jesus. That's why it's not hopeless. And he asks, are you really ready to allow the Holy Spirit to transform and empower you? You see, all that John points to and asks can seem intense, can seem a bit harsh, can seem hopeless, and it would all be that if there was no time and if there was no hope available. But this is a hope-filled message because of all that Jesus is and because of all that Jesus does. John says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I am not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. And then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn and burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Someone much greater than I is coming. And he's not talking here about the baby Jesus in some respects, because at the point when he's speaking here, Jesus is about 30 years old. John makes it really clear here that Jesus is more powerful than he is. There's something about John. Everyone can see it and knows it because they're traveling out into the middle of the wilderness to see him and to hear him. But John says, Jesus is more than I am. Jesus is more powerful than I am. And you've traveled to the wilderness to hear me. John makes it clear that Jesus is supremely worthy. Feet were seen as disgustingly disgraceful in the first century. 
for lots of reasons, mainly because they were sandals and you know all the stuff that's on the floor sometimes that wouldn't stay off your feet if you were wearing an open-toed sandal. Get my drift? I don't need to be more explicit than that, do I? We know what might have covered people's feet. Mm? That's why they were disgusting, filthy. I mean, I don't really like feet very much anyway, but there you go. But in the first, they were just not. But John's saying, do you know what? However filthy they are, I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. The lowliest, most unworthy part of this one who is coming, I'm not worthy to touch. Jesus has a supreme worth that exceeds any normal human being. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This points to something of what Jesus is coming to do. He is going to make it possible that the very spirit of the Holy God will rest and dwell within a person. This would be impossible, was it not for the work of Jesus who came to deal with our sin, to take away the barrier that might stop a holy God being able to come and dwell with us. Jesus will baptize with fire. You know, um, when Jesus returns again to this earth, fire is spoken about in our scriptures, normally speaks about judgment. But Jesus is the one who will judge. This fits into the context, I think, of what John was saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who set themselves up as judges of the people's lives, really, deciding who was right, who was worthy, who was acceptable before God. John comes to prepare us. John comes to make straight the road to the spiritual renewal of all of our hearts. And he does that by pointing us to the coming of Jesus and asking, have you really, really understood who this Jesus is? And he points us to true repentance and he says, have you repented of your sins? And he points us to the work of Jesus. And he says, are you ready? Are you really ready to allow the Spirit to transform you and to empower you? The Jesus that John readies us to meet and receive is the one able to transform us. He is the one who is able to change us so that we can become like him and so that we can do the things that he does for his glory. So that we can truly live as members and ambassadors of the kingdom of God within this neighborhood and also within his world. Maybe be ready so that we can pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.